You know, it's not real hard to tell when somebody is really, really passionate about something. If you think about it, I could give you all kinds of examples of this, uh, but let me just start, for example, that of sports. I mean, we've had now the beginning of the football season, and there are all kinds of football fans. There are people that, you know, that are kind of interested, the people that, are, that are really love the team, and, and then you have those who take it to another level who are truly passionate. A couple weeks ago, I had a chance to go to the Ohio State game. Uh, my brother-in-law works at Ohio State. He does some things with the, you know, with the athletic department and the medical side, and, and so he's a, you know, he's a really big fan. They're all in on Ohio State. And uh, so, so it was wonderful to be able to go there and to see it and to have that time with him. And, and, and now they're all in. You know, they've, you, know, got, you know, they go and every time they've got all the hats and the clothes and, and they're all in. But, but when you go down there, you realize that there's like fans and there's like other level. I'm, I mean, I, I wore the T-shirt and they, they said, oh, you got to, you can't, you know, I, I didn't have an Ohio State hat. They said, you got to wear our hat. You know, you got to go to Ohio State. And, yeah, some people that, you know, they, they go all out, they, they, you know, get their jerseys, they think get the things that are more expensive. And then even just walking there, you see some people that, let's say tailgating, you know, they take tailgating, there's a bunch of people tailgating, but there's some people that, again, just take it to this different level. They've got, you know, RVs and buses that they spend, you know, probably tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars renovating. And, and it, you know, you don't drive that around. You don't use it around on an everyday basis. I mean, this is just for Ohio State, just for the games. And, and it made me wonder, you know, how much time and money do these people spend on their love of Ohio State football? And, and then you have, again, people that will dress up and then will the shirts and things. And then you have people that take it to to a totally different level, that, you know, they're not just wearing their jerseys, they're, you know, they're showing their craziness. They're, you know, in, in most settings, you would look at somebody like this and you'd say, like, they're crazy. What in the world are they doing? They're extreme. And, but when you're passionate for your team, being extreme, being crazy for them is a good thing. And it's not just limited to Ohio State. You know, you could look at, at, at professional football. And uh, the Browns started their season last week, and in spite of the fact that they've been terrible for 20 years, they still have a bunch of really passionate fans, you know, that, that have loved them in spite of everything. And these are people who will spend huge amount of money on pre premium season tickets, and, and you know, they're, they're going to work the whole schedule around uh, the week of the game, and, you know, so that it's like, well, that day, they've got to be there all day and get there early and tailgate and everything, and, and, and they'll brag and, about how over the top they are, you know, and, and how much we spent and how crazy we are, and, now, when you look at this, we can laugh about it, but it illustrates a really basic principle in life, not just in sports, in life. The principle is this, that we will always naturally and freely give what is important to us in the pursuit of what is of supreme value to us. I mean, that's a basic principle in all of life. When you're passionate about something, really passionate, so you're going to naturally want to spend whatever free money you have, whatever free time you have. Um, you could even say, it's, it's why? Because you love the team. Could we say that it's almost worship? Because that's really almost what it is. When I'm really something of a supreme value, in a sense, I'm worshiping. And what I really value the most, I naturally want to give up what is, what is important to me in the pursuit of that which is supreme to me. Let me put it from a different angle. You can always tell what a person is really passionate about by how they invest that which is important to them. 
Let's start with time and money, and we can look at our schedule, and we can look at our checkbook, and, and, and show me what you spend on what's, imp or what's important to you, what you invest it in, what you give it to, and I will tell you, that's what you're passionate about. Now, this is a principle that's true in all areas of life. It's not just sports. It's a principle for, for all areas, and it's true for all of us, because every one of us has something, or maybe a few some things that are of supreme value to us. And whatever that something is, we all naturally, joyfully, and willingly give up that which is important to us, things like our time and our money, in the pursuit of that which is of supreme value, that which we believe to be ultimate. You know, many people, for example, will give up you know, incredible amount of money and time for their hobbies. And so, you know, whatever hobby it is, they're every weekend, they have all their free time, they're doing this, and, and they're saving money, and then they buy this expensive thing for their hobby, and, and it's not like it's twisting arms. You know, but they call, you know, a friend comes over, hey, come over here, I got bought these new golf clubs, I spent all this money, and, and I'm bragging about how much I spent, because I'm excited, because I willingly want to give that which is important to me, which is of supreme value. Or people will spend, you know, it's when you have a big concert coming up or you have a, a new product release of some game or some, you know, some technology, people will camp out overnight. They're stay, sleeping out in the cold so that they can then spend hundreds of dollars to be able to buy the thing that they think is of such great value. It, it's not only that, it's relationships. You know, when, we, when we're, you know, somebody's in a new relationship and they're passionately in love and they're totally enamored with that other person, what happens? We give all our time. You know, we're, we're planning how to do events. We're, we're planning special events. And it's not like, you know, you look at someone who's in love and you say, you know, they're making you give up all your time and, you know, you're canceling things with other friends. And why are they making you do it? Oh, they're not making me do it. I want to do it. You see, I want to give up all that time. Why? Because I believe that that person will be the source of pleasure and joy, and so I'm willing to give up that which is important in the pursuit of that which is of supreme value to me. Now, as we've said, this is a principle that's true for all of us in all areas of life. And here's really the question that I want to start with. If that's true, and we can see where it's true when it comes to hobbies or sports or a love for the things we want to buy, our relationship with other people, is it true, therefore, when it comes to our relationship with God? We will always naturally and freely give what is important to us in the pursuit of what we value the most. And since this is true, and since what you can always tell what a person is truly passionate about by, by how they're investing in that which is important to them, see, we have to ask, then, what does that say about our relationship with God. We all have something that we're passionate about, something that we put supreme value on. What is that to you? Where is God in that, in that whole, uh, uh, whole question, a value chart? And if you can always tell what a person is truly most passionate about, what they believe to be of supreme value, what, they're, what we're willing to be crazy for, you know, by our craziness, by our going over the top and investing that which is important to us, things like time and money, then, you know, what does your schedule, what does your checkbook say about the importance of, of God in your life? And those are some good questions. I want you to, to realize, okay, we're going to look at these questions. They all come from, from the text we're going to look at. And, and I want to show you where they develop here from John chapter 12. But, but as we do that, let me start by going, looking at this and, and seeing kind of this big picture of, of the point that John's trying to teach. 
It's really a passage that's teaching us the difference between those who don't believe, you know, this contrast between true unbelievers, those who have a false belief, who claim to have a belief, but it's a false belief, and those who have a true transformative faith. Now, as we look at John chapter 12, it's important to remember it's in the context of the whole story. You know, when John wrote this, he didn't put it in chapters. Those chapters were added hundreds of years later to help us navigate around, you know, reading the book and finding our way around. But there's a connection. You see, at the end of, end of chapter 11, we read that Lazarus had, or Jesus had just ra raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus had been dead for four days. And Jesus now calls this one out from the grave who had been dead, and he gives him life. And the result was this incredible, not only excitement, but division. There was an incredible division between one group of people who saw the miracle as a sign, as an evidence of who Jesus was and a sign of what he came to do, and therefore believed because they, they saw the sign. And there was another group who didn't want to believe Jesus. And they saw the sign, and they saw the sign and the evidence as a threat, as a threat to the, their own agenda, you know, to their own uh, autonomy. In fact, we see this at the end of verse 40, uh, or end of chapter 11. Look at verse 45. I'm sorry, um, I, I didn't put this up here. For, verse 45, um, it says, Many of the Jews therefore had come with Mary and who had seen what he did, believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And immediately in the next verse, we're told that, that there were some who didn't believe. So some of the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take him away. And, and so, the, you know, they're sitting there saying, okay, we're threatened by this. And as a result, in verse 53, from that day, they made plans to put him to death. So now as we turn to chapter 12, we see that, okay, there's a division between this one group and this other group, this people that were unbelievers and seemingly believers, but now in chapter 12, we see that even amongst those who claim to be believers, those who followed Jesus, there were some who had a true faith and some who had a false faith, some, some who had a sense of belief. They claimed to be followers. They, they had all the marks, people like Judas, who from the outside sure looked like he, he believed in Jesus. He had an intellectual assent about the power of Jesus. He had seen all the miracles, but it was ultimately a false faith. faith. And then you have others like, like Mary that we're going to see that had a faith that was not just intellectual belief, but it was something that she embraced into her life, and it changed her from the inside out as evidenced through the action. And so now as we see this, we see the context of this is that it, it's all played out in a, in, in a special dinner. In chapter, at the end of chapter 11, again, we were told that Jesus uh, knew the religious leaders were trying to kill him, and so as a result, he had left Jerusalem, and, and he had stayed in a wilderness. And then we come to chapter uh, one or, or chapter 12, verse 1, six days before the Passover. Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So after staying away, Jesus now comes back, and we're told it's six days before the Passover. It, it's, it's, you know, the Friday before Palm Sunday. It's seven days before Jesus put on the cross. And, and John is very intentional here saying, okay, Jesus is coming back. Bethany is two miles from Jerusalem. He's about to enter Jerusalem. He's coming back because he knows that he's coming to die. And so there's an intentionality. And it's not just that he snuck into, you know, to the, into the area. No, that we're told later on that there was crowds that heard that Jesus was there and they came to see him, that Jesus was publicly making a statement. 
And in this dinner, in the context of this dinner, it's, you know, there's this dinner that's, that, um, you know, that, that seems to be you know, um, you know, a, a, a normal dinner, but it's a dinner that now has this, this disruption by these provocative actions. Um, look at verse 2. Let's see the context of this dinner. So they gave a dinner for him there, and Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table. So from what John says here, we have this, this dinner, and it's a dinner of honor. They gave a dinner for Jesus, and it's given by some of Jesus' close friends uh, to celebrate his grace, to thank him for what he, he's done. And specifically, we're told that Martha, Mary, and Lazarus were all there, and they had a key part in what was going to happen at this dinner. And I think it's motivated by the fact that, you know, this is only weeks from the time that Jesus had, had raised Lazarus from the dead, and they want to thank him, and Lazarus is right there. Now, before I go digging into this, I want to kind of explain something that is important to understand the context of this meal um, that we would naturally miss because, because you know, what we, our context of things is so different. You know, we... You know, you think about if you go to a fancy meal, if you go to a meal somewhere, if you, especially let's say if you've been traveling for a while, you know, if you go to a meal, what happens? You walk in and people know you've been on the road for a while and they're like, oh, do you want to stop in the restroom before you go? Do you want to wash up? Do you want to? I mean, there's certain things that we kind of have polite, you know, things that we greet people, how we interact with people. And they wouldn't have done that then. It was a very different time and culture. But there were things that were part of what they did, part of what was expected with them. Um, and, and some of this is when we're going to see Mary coming out with this perfume, it's important to understand at first this would have seemed normal. See, um, in that time and culture, we've got, to, we've got to go outside of our time and culture. We've got to remember in that time and culture, in that time and place, it was a very warm, hot environment. This were, was years before things like deodorant. Uh, these are years before you had bathrooms and showers in the home. Uh, you didn't have running water. And as a result, people bathed very infrequently. And likewise, you didn't have mold, you know, a bunch of changes of clothes, and you washed your clothes infrequently. And, and they lived in this hard, hot, dry climate where you walked everywhere. You were outside all the time. There wasn't air conditioning. Now, if you put this all together, I mean, what it means, if you just think about it, this was, a, this was a world where people stank, you know? I mean, practically, you didn't have toothbrushes, you didn't have toothpaste, you didn't have mouthwash. You, you lived in this context where smell was part of the reality of, of life. And, uh, you know, it's, it's everything smelled bad, everyone smelled bad. Now, I'm not trying to make a, you know, you know big deal. This is just the reality. And, and so, you, you might be thinking, well, it was different then. You know, they were used to it. That was just part of the reality, and that's what they lived with. And well, you know what? Their bodies worked the same way and produced the same smells, and their nose worked the same way and smelled the same things. And, and so whereas it's what they lived with, it impacted them the same way. By, it's not only by our standards they stank, by their standards they stank. And so when you would go to a really nice meal and you're all there together, you know, Part of what's going on is that the meal is kind of negatively impacted by you're not smelling the food, you're smelling the guy next to you. And so one of the things that was extremely common at a nice meal would be that you would have the host come out with a perfume, some kind of an expensive ointment, and these things were, and the good ones were very expensive, and they would come out and they would take a little bit of that and they would anoint the person on the head 
with that ointment, with the idea that, okay, well, you know, it's like heavy, heavy due to perfume. If I can put this on you, and hopefully it will cover up the bad smell so that you'll smell good for the person next to you. Now, that was, that was what was normal. That's the context. That's part of the dinner of honor. Now, what happens here is totally different. Mary walks into that, and she totally breaks the whole expectation and does something that I'm going to say is not only radical, it's something that many people there would have seen as, as even offensive and, and just shocking. And it, and it totally broke up the meal. It totally, you know, totally turned all the attention. Now again, let's go back to verse 2. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Now, I want you to notice a few things. First of all, John stresses that Martha is serving. She's part of this dinner. Lazarus is there reclining at the table. And so clearly, what he's making a point here is that this whole family has been a huge part of planning this dinner. They're all there together to celebrate this. Now, verse 3 comes and says, Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment, made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, something I've never really noticed before, I've even wondered, you know, what was, what was you know, Mar- uh, Martha thinking when Mary did this and, 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 and Lazarus? And what I've no- never noticed is that verse 3 starts with a conjunction. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment. Therefore. And what John's saying is that here you have this dinner that is being thrown by this family, and they're all in this together. And so here you have, you know, Martha's role is that she's serving, and she's trying to make this a wonderful environment, and Lazarus is there, and and part of that is it's a testimony of the fact that he's alive. You know, so that he's sitting next to Jesus, and he's saying, hey, this is why we're doing this. This is the miracle that we've come to celebrate. And then Mary likewise has a role. And so when she comes in here together, you know, it's, it's in a sense saying, okay, we're doing this all together. This was a celebration that everyone did. And when we look at the expense of what happened, what you realize, okay, this is a family that lived together. They, they came together. They somehow pulled their money together. They somehow pulled together, their, you know, their, their, whatever they had to be able to give this incredible gift to Jesus. So when you look at this, we're going to focus primarily on Mary, but I want you to realize that they're all in it together. And, and they're all serving, their, their role is part of this incredible, incredible meal and this message. And so what she does now is she comes in and, and, and Mary comes in and she does some three things that are incredibly radical. Um, and what do we read? Again, verse 3, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And we read that, and you say, well, you know, pure nard, and what's that? And, you know, and, um, I, I want to tell you, if, you know, if you were to name something, you wouldn't name it nard to be good you know, salespeople, but, you know, that's what it was. It was kind of, you know, this, this really rare um, plant from India. It was extremely expensive. We're going to see in a moment. And, but here she comes out with this ointment, this perfume, that you're expecting just to give a little bit. And if you have a pound, it's, you know, this is you know, somewhere between probably 12 and 16 ounces, a pound of it. It's the type of thing that you would buy this amount and it would last you forever. Because you're just, you know, when you're just putting a little dab on, on each person, I mean, it, it's going to last you forever. And she comes and she doesn't just anoint Jesus. I don't know if she had gone to other people and anointed them and come to Jesus last, or if she just went straight to Jesus. She doesn't just take a little bit and anoint him on his head, but she takes it and literally pours out the whole thing. 
We, we read in, in both Matthew and uh, Mark and their account that it says that there they say he did it on his head. I think it, he did his whole body. And there they were, it was communicating something different. Here we're seeing when it talks about the feet, it's communicating something about the nature. And we're going to see that in a moment. But, but she poured out the whole amount. And this was, again, shocking because this was, we're going to see in a moment, the value of this. It was something that just shocked everybody. It was something, you don't do this. And not only that, but whereas Matthew and Mark tells us that she you know, poured it on the head, no, here John says, well, no, not only that, but he focuses on the, the whole body, but specifically the feet, that she anointed the feet of Jesus. And, um, and you know, when we look at this whole idea that she anointed the feet, that she literally washes his feet with this perfume. Now, again, this may sound strange to us, um, you know, but it's not shocking to us. And what we've got to realize is it was shocking to the people then. Because when we talked in the beginning about the fact that they lived in a culture where people stank, which was true, your, your body stank, but your feet especially stank. That was the part that was the worst. I mean, these were people that, again, wore sandals everywhere. They, they, uh, they walked everywhere. Their, fet, their feet sweat. They're walking in dirt. Their feet are caked with dirt, with junk, with sweat. And it was, you know, that was the worst part of all. It was, you know, it was seen so, so much that it was, again, the Jewish uh, law, not the Bible, but the Jewish law of that time, it was something illegal to have a Jewish servant wash the feet of other, of other Jews because it was beneath even a servant to do that. You couldn't do that. And so here you have something that is, that is so humbling. That's why when, when, if, when we come to John chapter 13, it's shocking that Jesus washes his disciples' feet. What, what he did was shocking to them. But here you have Mary, this, this seeming you know, well-respected woman, this woman who has a reputation in this, in this area. And what does she do? She goes to Jesus' feet, and she washes with the perfume. She humbles herself to, to an extreme level. I, I can't think of anything that would be a, a relative you know, um, illustration in our time and culture because I don't think there's a way for any, any of us to humble ourselves to this degree. There's nothing that we would see as being this low. But that's what she did publicly. And not only that, but what does it say? She not only anointed his feet, but then she wiped his feet with her hair. And again, we might read that and we think this is you know, kind of surprising but we miss the importance of that culture. In that culture, a woman's hair was seen as her beauty and her glory, and it was something that was incredibly private in a sense that letting down your hair was intimate. An adult woman would always wear her hair up, and the only time that she would take it down is in the privacy with her husband, usually in the bedroom. She would wear it up, and that would be like the first act of revealing on the wedding night that she would take her hair down. And so it was seen as not only her beauty and her glory, but but taking your hair down was incredibly revealing and intimate. And here you have Mary in the midst of this group of people now takes her hair down, doing something that is shocking just by itself. You, you don't do that in public. And she takes her hair down and she takes the symbol of her beauty and her glory and she uses it to wipe the dirt off Jesus' feet. And I want to tell you, as people are there, they are totally shocked. But what, under, what Mary understood is, Mary understood, this is the one that I, this is the one that I, oh, this is the one that I find supreme glory in. 
And I'm willing to pour out my wealth. I'm willing to pour out my my image. I'm willing to be humbled. I'm willing to, to pour out what people think of me. I'm willing to be a fool for Jesus Christ. I'm willing to do all this. Because it's not about, okay, what do I do to get from him? It's no, how do I give what I have? Because he's the one of supreme value. He's already given it to me, and my pursuit of him is is the ultimate thing. And my friends, even when I look at this, I think about how many of us, you know, it's like, man, I don't know if I want to witness to a friend, because what are they going to think? You know, if if I tell them about Christ, if, you know, I I might try to witness to them or offer to pray for them, and they might think I'm a crazy person, or they might reject me. And it's amazing how how, again, so many of us are so hesitant to talk about Christ because we're afraid of what people think of us. But we'll go out and we'll dress up in crazy things for our sports team because we're not worried about what people think. We will be crazy for the Browns or the, you know, the Buckeyes or for whatever. But whatever we love the most, whatever we treasure, we give that which is important to us in the pursuit of what is that is ultimate. And here you have Mary, in a way that is far beyond whatever of us could any explain, is totally willing to lose everything in her love and pursuit of Jesus Christ. Now, before we really look at Judas, I want you to just think about this, the natural reaction to this, uh, to what she's done. Look at verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of uh, his disciples, whom was about to betray him, said, Why is this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, it's, it's, it's easy to miss the impact of what's being said here. Because, again, we read 300 denarii, and we don't necessarily know what that is. Well, denarii was, that was like the, the core, uh, you know, silver, it was a silver piece. I actually have one. It's, you know, if you look at this, it's just, it's like a size of a dime. Uh, it's, you know, it's, this is a Roman denari- denarius, and, um, but it was the, the smallest silver piece. All the other uh, money was all bronze, and it was worth a lot less. And the silver, you had a couple larger pieces. But this was worth a lot in that day. A denarii was, was generally considered to be the average wage of, an, of a, a day's wage for a worker. And, um, and so if we were to try to understand that even in the weight of happening in the terms of our current value, you know, let's just say that if you had, a worker then was 12 hours, but let's just say eight hours a day. If we had somebody that was eight hours a day, um, let's say $8 an hour, you know, that's $64 a, a day. And if we had 300 of those, that adds up to almost $20,000. Now, I want you to put yourself in this picture here. Here you're at a meal, and suddenly you have someone come out, and you have a, and we can't even imagine any kind of liquid that's worth $20,000. I don't imagine it exists, but I can't imagine it. But if you had somebody come out with something that's worth $20,000, and they don't just give it to Jesus, but she pours it out on him. And so it's being poured out, it's being being totally used, it's being emptied. And I want to tell you, if, if I'm there and I'm seeing that happen, there's a reaction that's a natural reaction. What? It's a waste. What are you doing? What are you, you know, you don't expect that. That is so shocking for everyone that is there. In fact, what we read as we read in Matthew and Mark's account is that everyone was upset. Look at, look at Mark chapter 14. It, Mark says, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was not this ointment, uh, why was this ointment wasted like that? For the ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. Now, this is not just you know, few. This was the group. They scolded her. They, they you know, they, they were angry. And this is incredible. You know, 
when you look at this, it's, you know, we look at this and we say, well, Judas had a problem. No, this was something that was scandalous to the majority of people that were there. And they reacted in scandal. But John doesn't look at the group. Everyone else, you know, Matthew and Mark do. But John looks at Judas because he's trying to draw out and looking at Judas the motive. Now, on the one hand, you can look at, at Mary, and, and her action was scandalous. It was extreme. It was, it was something that was, you know, that offensive to people that weren't ready for it. But Judas was upset for a reason. And, and what he does is he draws our attention to the motive, both of, of Mary and of Judas, because what, we've, what he's teaching us here is that our actions and our attitudes always reveal something about the true nature of our heart. They always reveal what we find as supreme. So again, look, look at verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he, was, uh, he, was, he who was about to betray him. Now remember that John says this. John, we're going to come back to the, this. It's not just a footnote. There's a reason. Judas, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Here's the motive. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. And so here's what it's saying. Judas was upset, not because just the scandal of the extreme of what Mary did, but he's looking at it and saying, if they keep that money to us, I'm keeping it, and I'm able to skim off some off the top. He was upset because he saw it as a personal loss. See, what it's doing is it's illustrating something. It's illustrating a core difference between these two people. Both people who outwardly seem to follow Jesus, outwardly have a belief about Jesus' power, have a, you know, like what he's teaching, but there's a core difference between a false belief and a transformative faith. And the core difference is, was Jesus their ultimate? You see, because what we've got to realize is that for all of us, either Jesus will be our ultimate end, or he will be a means to some greater end. Either Jesus is the greatest love that we invest other things to pursue him, or there is something else that is a greater love, and we may value Jesus, but we use him to get what we really want. You see, Mary's faith was defined by the, the fact that she not only intellectually believed that Jesus was God, but she acted on that belief. It was evident by the fact how she related to Jesus as God. She is worshiping. Her worship is one of humbling of herself, of, of emptying the things that are important to her. She's emptying herself of her self-worth. She's humbling himself, herself before people. She's, she's letting down her hair and washing his feet with her hair. In one sacrifice, she took what was you know, her most expensive possession and she poured it upon Jesus. And, and when we look at this, we've got to realize that this was not just to try to get to Jesus to do something. He had already done it. It was out of gratitude. It was an expression of faith. It was an expression of, of an immense value. It's, she loved him that much. And nobody forced her to do this. This was like the ultimate joy. I get to do this. I get to be able to invest what is important to me in the pursuit of what is supreme. That's the motive. It's the one who says, I'm, I'm willing to do this because it's moving me toward what is of greatest value. Now, you contrast that with Judas. Here you saw Judas, and I think Judas arguably saw Jesus as God. 
He had been there when Jesus spoke the words and raised Lazarus from the dead. He had intellectual belief about who Jesus was. He had witnessed firsthand all the miracles, all the signs that Jesus had done. And I think it's right to say that Jesus was important to Judas. He had followed him for three years. It wasn't something that he didn't value all. No, there was some importance. But what we see here is that while Jesus was important, he wasn't supreme. What did, Jesus, what did Judas really value? He valued money. He valued wealth. He valued power. Those are the things that he valued the most. And what he believed is that he believed that if he followed Jesus, then Jesus would help him get those things. One day that Jesus would become the ruler and he would kind of help out those who were part of his team. See, we've got to realize in our life that that this is true for all of us. Either Jesus will be our ultimate end, the ultimate reality, what we believe to be the ultimate source of joy and meaning and purpose. And if he is, we will willingly lay down our own agenda. We will willingly lay down all the things that are important to us in pursuit of him. Or we will see our own wisdom. We will see the promises of our world. We will have our natural desires and believe that those are ultimate truth. And something that comes from that is the ultimate reality. And, and, and when we believe that, we might believe in God. You see, but God becomes a means to pursue that ultimate thing. It's a spiritual force that we seek to connect with to help us to get the material things that we think are going to make us happy. Now, let's look at Mary. We see what drove her. Mary believed that God was the ultimate source of meaning and joy. That's what drove her actions. And again, you know, we have the two kinds of people. She's this first kind. She believes the one that, 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 that Jesus is the ultimate reality. And, and what you see here is that Mary's really at the core. She's like an accountant who looks at this and, and, and she's saying, because Jesus is the ultimate reality, I'm going to spend everything that I have in pursuing him. You know, Jesus himself used this illustration. He talked about the same idea in, in Matthew. And look what he said. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. It's a treasure. And Mary looks at this and says, this is a treasure. And I'm willing to to sell what I have. I'm willing to pour out my wealth. I'm willing to pour out my my identity. I'm I'm willing to be a fool for Christ because, because it's all worth the pursuit of the ultimate treasure. Continues on, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and brought it. You see, it's self-sacrifice to the degree of the pursuit of the ultimate treasure. Why did Mary do this? Because she knew that Christ was a supreme. You see, and the principle we talked about in the beginning is that we will always naturally and freely give up what is important to us in the pursuit of what is of supreme value. And Mary knew what was of supreme value, and what we see is her actions acting naturally out of that. Now, Judas, on the other hand, is an example of of, of many who believe that God is a powerful ally in our agenda. And again, here's a different scheme. And he's looking at Jesus, and he's saying, if I be around Jesus, and sooner or later, then Jesus is going to, you know, he's going to become king. He's going to become wealthy. He's going to become powerful. And and, and he's a way for me to get that. He's an ally. I've got an agenda, and if I just do this, if I, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, it's going to help me accomplish this. Go back to verse 4. 
I want you to notice that when John introduces Judas, what does he say? Judas, who was about to betray him. John is here teaching us that this event is linked to Judas' betrayal just a few days later. You see, it's not only revealing something about Judas' heart, but it's saying you've got to understand this whole story because the story is revealing something to Judas that changes his behavior. Judas saw Jesus as a means to a powerful end. He saw him as the one who would eventually you know, be affirmed to this leader and that would give him wealth and power. But these verses expose his heart. Why? Because here you have this person pouring out you know, a year's wage, $20,000, and, and he's, you know, he's offended. And Jesus looks at him and says, no, she's doing the right thing. Why? She's preparing me for my burial. And he's saying two things there. He's saying, number one, I didn't come to be a political leader. I didn't come to, to, you know, to, to be wealthy and, and no, I'm coming to die. And second of all, the right thing to do is to pour out this financial wealth because I'm the ultimate pursuit. I'm not a means to some greater end. I am the ultimate end. And Judas looks at this and he is offended. And this one who valued wealth in such way and who saw Jesus as a means to wealth, what does he do within a, you know, four or five days later? He wanted to believe that Jesus was an ally he could use to become wealthy, and when he realized that Jesus wasn't going to cooperate, he used Jesus to become wealthy. And he betrayed him. He betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver, not 300, now 30. These 30 pieces of silver were probably, they're worth four denarii each, 100, you know, 120 denarii. It's probably about twelve or $10,000, a huge amount of money. I'm, I'm convinced that I'm going to use Jesus to get, get wealthy, and if he's, if he's not going to cooperate, I'm going to do it my own way. My friends, I want you to even think about this. What then happened? For those that know the story, Judas betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, and within a short period of time, he commits suicide. Now, again, I, I looked at that in the past, I, well, I felt guilty, and I think there's something deeper. I think John is digging deep into the motivation of Judas that he saw an ultimate end. I want to be wealthy and powerful, and Jesus is going to help me get it in one way or another, whether it's by his agenda or my agenda, and suddenly he sells Jesus, and he's got the money. And he's got the money he's longed for, and he suddenly realizes it didn't satisfy. You know, people talk about there's two kinds of tragedies. There's one kind of tragedy for someone who lives their whole life pursuing a goal and never reaches that goal. But there's a greater tragedy, someone who spends their whole life pursuing a goal and reaches it and then realizes that it was empty. And there's so many people who do that. They spend their whole life, they pursue a goal. If I just get this, it's going to be happy, and I'm using God to do it. And, and suddenly you get the goal, and you come out empty, and you suddenly realize that it didn't satisfy. And I think that's what you see with Judas. And you see someone who is crushed, not be only because of his guilt, but because he realizes when he finally gets the money that he's been longing for in his hand, he realized it's left him empty. And so, my friends, I want to challenge you on this. Really, the question is not only looking at Mary and, and Judas, and, but it's looking at all of us and recognizing that John is going from those who are outside to those that are inside, the, the believers and unbelievers. And then he said, okay, those who claim to believe, there's two groups. There's people who have a false faith and those who have a true faith. Those who claim to believe in Jesus, but they see Jesus as a means to a greater end and those who understand that Jesus is the ultimate end. 
those who see him as supreme and say, because he's supreme, I'm willing to give up all everything else in the pursuit. He's, he is the great treasure I sell everything for. And others that say, no, I, he's, you know, I'm, he's the means to trying to get something else that I think will make me happy and content and meaningful. And, and so the question is really this, what does our life say about what we really believe? Because we can make claims you know, I'm sure that Judas made all kinds of great claims about his faith in Jesus, and there are many people who make great claims. But at the end of the day, that if we look at, at what we really pursue, what we're willing to be a fool for, what we invest ourselves in, it shows us that Jesus isn't our greatest, greatest treasure. Or sometimes even when we go through periods of crisis, it's God's way of saying, okay, what do you treasure, me or this? And because anything else we treasure can and will be taken away. It won't last forever. Anything else that we pursue will let us down, and only when we put Jesus as that ultimate treasure, only in him will we find the contentment that will never be shaken. Only then will we find the security of life that, that will last. My friends, I want to just challenge you again. Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? It's not just do you know about him, but do you have a relationship where you say, God, I want you to be my ultimate reality, my ultimate treasure. And if you're not there to say, God, what is our sin? Our sin is putting other things in God's place. And it's saying, God, help me to put you first. There may be some that we've done that in the past and, you know, we've accepted Christ in the past, and, but we've realized that other things have drawn us away and God's calling us back. No, I want you to love me like Mary did. I want, I want to be your ultimate treasure because I'm the only treasure that won't disappoint. You know, there may be some that are even here and part of the struggle, struggle is, is in the context of, of crisis, and, and there are things that are important to us are being, being attacked, being taken away, being threatened. And that's not bad that we struggle. You see, because even as we struggle, those are things that are important to us, and, and they should be hard to let go of. You see, but I want you to realize, even in the midst of that, God calls us to come to him, and not only to seek his grace and help, but one part of the answer is to say, God, help me to Help me to not only believe you, that you will provide, that you will carry me through this, but help me to make you the ultimate treasure. That even if these other things are shaken, you're not a means to somehow get this, but Father, help me to realize that, that you're my ultimate reality. And no matter what happens, Father, when I make you my ultimate reality, my life won't be shaken. Thanks for joining us. If you have any questions about what we talked about, Jesus Christ, our church, or anything else, connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or by email. We'd love to hear from you.